welcome to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, and I'm here with my co-host, David Moser, who is still in coronavirus exile, although now he is in Oklahoma. That's right, Oklahoma. Much less population dense, <laughs> and everyone drives, so actually I feel pretty much at home here. I can go out and walk around and feel safe. Much safer here. Well, I'm still here in Beijing, and uh, while things are returning to a kind of normal here, uh, I'm glad that you're safe in uh, Oklahoma. And certainly what will pass as normal for the foreseeable future in Beijing is something sort of left to be determined. Today we're going to talk about language, and we're going to talk specifically about a field of research that, David, you've worked a long time on, and you've, you've written a book about it, too, called A Billion Voices. And we're going to talk about what we mean by Mandarin. And what does Putonghua mean in the context of, of China? One of the things to think about is what we mean even when we say languages. And, and one way to look at this is there's an estimated 130 non-Han languages spoken among China's 55 designated ethnic groups. And these tongues are disappearing rapidly. And that's not including all the different forms of the Chinese language that are often spoken by groups that identify as Han and that are often called dialects in China. By 2050, there's a target to have Putonghua or Mandarin be spoken by all Chinese. And this is certainly an ambitious target. And it, it forces us to ask, well, what's the purpose of Mandarin then? Is it a way for all the different groups that comprise the Chinese nation to be able to speak together and communicate? Or is it meant to replace all of the diverse languages of China? When Xi Jinping, of course, when Xi Jinping came to power, one of the things that a lot of people you know, said about him was, oh my goodness, we finally have a Chinese leader who can, sp who can speak Putonghua. And I think from around the world, that may seem a little bit strange, but we have to think back to a lot of the previous leaders, you know, Chairman Mao, Deng Xiaoping, even um, Hu Jintao, all spoke with relatively noticeable regional accents. And so when we're thinking about language in China, we have to think about its diversity. And one of the things that happened uh, this week um, was this controversy over Douyin. Uh, this is the app, the sort of forerunner of TikTok, and people posting in Cantonese. And David, tell me, tell us a little bit about what was the controversy and what happened with Douyin and the Cantonese language. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, it's the it's sort of the Chinese version of TikTok, and uh, people were. Uh, People were posting all kinds of uh, videos, doing some live streaming in Cantonese. And they would find that when they would uh, broadcast for a certain amount of time, the, the, the use of the app would shut down. They'd be fined uh, with 10-minute bans accompanied by prompts to switch into Mandarin. So they, they quickly realized that there was, there was this campaign on to, to try to uh, discourage the use of Cantonese uh, on, the, on the app. Cantonese is a uh, the second most widely spoken Chinese uh, language with 62 million native speakers. That's about the same number as the world's Italian speakers. And yet uh, Douyin is, is to saying that you're not allowed to use this, this form of language because, of course, we're trying to promote uh, Putonghua. And this promotion of Putonghua, I think, is, is at the heart of our discussion here. David, what is the what is Mandarin supposed to accomplish? Is this a is this a, a language that's supposed to unify the people and so that everyone will speak Mandarin as their first language, or is this so a guy from Guangdong, a guy from Shanghai, and a guy from Dongbei walk into a bar and when they tell a joke, everyone will laugh at the same time? 
the first thing we need to do is be a little more precise in our language, and by that I mean our terminology. Uh, we very sloppily sort of use the word Mandarin uh, as if it's just synonymous with Putonghua. Uh, there's nothing to be done about that. People are just used to that now. They'll say Mandarin when they really mean, you know, the standard language Putonghua. But actually Mandarin, you know, originally had another meaning, which was the, the, gen the common language during the, the Ming and the Qing. Uh, but then later on, the Mandarin dialects refer to what they call Bei Feng Feng Yan, the northern dialect. So that, that group of, of different uh, languages and speech uh, forms is called Mandarin. Uh, Putonghua is a special kind of language that is to some extent based upon the, the phonology of Beijing, and we'll get into that. It it's overlaps enough with Mandarin that it's okay to be sloppy about it and say we're all speaking Mandarin or Putonghua interchangeably. But I think probably for this podcast, we should be careful not to just blend the two because, in fact, that's part of the problem is that this thing Mandarin, which is spoken worldwide and even used as the technical term for the common language in places like Singapore, where it's just called Mandarin. Um, but the overlap between the Taiwan Guoyu, which we'll talk about, and Singapore Mandarin and the PRC's Putonghua, the overlap is considerable. Um, so I think it's okay to be sloppy occasionally with the terminology because we're really talking about the language that every that mostly most Chinese can understand, and uh, but I just want to point that out to begin with. Well, let, so let, let me give you a basic overview of the situation in China. So, a huge uh, country, uh, the size basically that of the United States, but with seven language groups that are, that are sort of like, uh, Han dialects, are the the Wu, the Gan, Xiang. The Minnanhua, which is what I think of as Taiwanhua or Fujianhua, Cantonese, and then Kejiahua, uh, which is Hakka. And but each of these seven language groups is divided into numerous sub-varieties with very, very unclear and shifting boundaries. If you want uh, some idea of what we're talking about, if you say something like, uh, if you give an example of the color green. Uh, if you point in your environment to things that would go, be classified as green, you have a, an amazing variety of different colors and hues and intensities. The same is true with dialects. They, they may fall under this category, but you travel a few hundred miles away and they can be a very different color, so to speak. When the Republican government, after the fall of the Qing, looked at, surveyed the linguistic landscape, they realized that they, there was quite a daunting problem here because if they wanted to unify the language, which form of speech would it be? So that that was the, you know, some of these uh, forms of, of, of speech forms uh, had speaking populations the size of a European country. So it was not a not an obvious uh, solution to the problem. This this problem of the dialects also is that there's the, the distinction really between a dialect and a language is is most often a political one. There's an old uh, funny saying that a language is just a dialect with a navy. Or sometimes I think the original version was a a, a, a dialect, a language is just a dialect with an army and a navy. But the, the main point is when we say what is a common language, what, are, how, what counts as a language, basically the, the sort of uh, linguistic criterion is simply mutual intelligibility. Can you basically understand what the other person is saying? And if, and if, in, if you can understand 90% what your interlocutor is saying, you're probably speaking the same language. The, the linguist and writer, uh, China expert, John DeFrancis used to say, asking the question, do you speak Chinese is akin to asking, do you speak romance? 
because some of those languages are are as different, like the difference between Beijing Hua and Guangdong Hua is as different as as uh, between French and Italian, if not greater. Sure, I mean, and I I think this this divide between like what's a language and what's a dialect is really fascinating because if you talk to most people in China, they'll tell you, of course, you know, China has so many dialects, and the term language is used and even somewhat reluctantly also, but to describe some of the non-Han uh, spoken languages, whereas within the Han group, there are dialects as opposed to languages, and it's a political distinction. Exactly. Well, the, uh, when we talk about politics, this is exactly what uh, the 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 headache was uh, when the when the uh, language policy under the under the Republican era started to try and decide on what would be a common language. Well, I, I think you brought up a really good point. When you're trying to in the 20th century, you had this you know, state building or nation building project that was comes out of the end of the Qing Empire and the rise of new forms of organization, notably, again, the nation state. And early state builders in the Republic of China and then their successors in the People's Republic of China are looking at the situation within the country. And as you said, they're seeing all these very large groups that have their own distinctive regional cultures, regional identities, and regional languages. And so one of the ideas is, okay, let's try to What's a way to bring the country or bring the nation together to overcome, you know, Sun Yat-sen's famous 400, you know, million grains of sand and organize them into one cohesive unit? Something I've talked uh, a lot about in my classes and, and in other places as well is when you make a transition from an empire to a nation state, you're asking the people uh, to do things or to believe things that are, you know, very different. Empires just want to be respected. Pay your taxes. Don't revolt. Nation states ask for a higher form of loyalty, and that for higher form of loyalty often supersedes local or regional distinctions. Yeah, I mean, I, they can't be blamed really for, for thinking that language unification would be one of the tasks of nation building, because when they looked at, at the model of the European nation states, it seemed like for, from their vantage point, this, this pattern of one country, one people, one language seemed to be the natural way of uh, inevitable way of organizing a modern country. Um, they sort of lacked the specific details of those linguistic situations. It was never quite that simple. But from their, their standpoint, the European countries that had, that had been uh, stomping all over them and stealing their lands seemed to have this in common. And this, so this became uh, the, their quest. This, this language unification movement didn't just start, though, after the Qing. Some of the Qing, late Qing scholars had studied in Japan and were very impressed by uh, the way that the Japanese had unified their, their language uh, in the face of many, many dialects. And even the, they even borrowed the word that, that, that Chiang Kai-shek used, and we still use, for a guoyu, a national language, from the Japanese, the, the gokugo in Japanese. So this idea of unifying the, the languages had been a long-term uh, agenda, a long-term goal. I know this is an incredibly deep subject, but for those uh, listeners who maybe are unfamiliar with the idea of Putonghua or its, or its predecessors as a constructed language, yeah, uh, that's why you have to go back to the struggles at the beginning of the Republican era when they actually, the first Goyu that they sort of came up with was actually a hybrid form of language that, that involved pronunciations from both North and South and was actually a language that nobody actually spoke. <laughs> it was a constructed language. Uh, and the, 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 the linguist Zhao Yanren, whose job it was to record the sounds for this language, 
once joked that that for for many years he was the sole speaker of this language that was supposed to be the common language for 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 a hundred hundred million people, right? So, Putonghua, what is it? I think probably if you just read the definition, you can get a sense of of how uh, what what a Frankensteinian uh, construct it is. This is the definition uh, from 1955 when they first began to when they held the Symposium on the Standardization of Modern Chinese. And this is the definition of Putonghua that still is basically the standard definition. Putonghua is the standard form of modern Chinese with the Beijing phonological system as the norm of pronunciation and northern dialects as its base dialect and looking to exemplary modern works in Baihua, the vernacular literary language, for its grammatical norms. Now, you don't have to be a linguist to hear that and realize that this is not this is a pieced together language that is not merely the language of, of a certain group, elite group of speakers. If you say, uh, what kind of French are you learning in French class? They'll say, well, that's easy. It's just the way they speak in Paris. But if you ask, what kind of Chinese are we learning in our language classes? The answer is not, well, just the way they speak in Beijing. It is decidedly not that. And that's the, what confuses a lot of people, I think. It is not a, a previously existing natural standard. It's a form of language that was actually debated and fixed by committees of linguists over many decades and is now the, the, the constitutionally mandated form of speech. And as you said, Mao Zedong didn't speak it. Deng Xiaoping didn't speak it. Zhang Zemin didn't speak it. And the Ministry of Culture says that there are still as many as, as 400 million people who still can't adequately speak this language that is supposed to be the common language. So you can see the problems that face the, the, the language reformers. Wow. So when my Beijing friends tell me like, oh yeah, we our Mandarin is perfect because we're, we're from Beijing. Maybe it's not quite as clear cut as that. No, it's not that simple at all. Why, why don't we test this? Uh, I'm going to go. Okay, I'm, how? I'm going to go and find a, a somewhat random speaker of Northern Mandarin, and let's see if there are some differences here uh, between Putonghua as as defined by uh, the Ministry of Culture and the Chinese educational system and the Northern uh, language or the Northern dialect. So I went out and found a uh, random test subject to explore the differences between uh, Northern uh, Chinese and or Northern spoken Chinese and Putonghua. And my somewhat random test subject uh, is somebody who has a great deal of media training. This is Zheng Yajun, who is the co-host of the Woman podcast on Radii China. And so I'm going to ask uh, Yajun to, to step up to the microphone and to, uh, to talk to David a little bit and to test some of these differences between Northern Chinese and Putonghua. Hi, David. Hi. Hello, <laughs> random person. You look very familiar for a random person. I, yeah. I, no, he just scrapped me out straight, yeah. apparently. That's okay. You're a good sport. Thank you for doing this. So, uh, you are a, a native speaker. Yep. And uh, so... This question is very important because if you pronounce a character with the wrong tone, you can be fined as much as 50 kwai at CCTV if you're it's an announcer. Passive. Yeah. So what I want you to do is just very slowly pronounce for us the word that in Chinese would be the equivalent of because. Yin wei. Say again? Yin wei. So I hear that the wei is second tone. 
Is that right? Yeah. That's Northern Mandarin. That's also Beijinghua. The actual Putonghua citation version of that word in in ninety percent of the dictionaries that you will see, the second the second、uh, character is pronounced with fourth tone, as inwei. Did you know that? Sure. Yeah. Well, if you ask most Chinese, <laughs> they're very unsure about it, just like you. I'm, I I was quite sure it's inwei something like that. Now I'm not so sure. And I don't want to lose well, fifty kwai. <laughs> don't well, don't worry. There are many examples like that, and you are not actually wrong. This is an artificial standard that has been imposed, and actually, few people or not everyone actually follows it.、Uh, for example, you might. How do you pronounce?、Uh, how do you say the word for complicated in Chinese? For complicated, 复杂 Okay, very good. Some people say 复杂 <laughs> Some people say 复杂 Actually, both are okay, but one of them is Putonghua, and the other isn't. 复杂 is、uh, the. I I think I, normally I would say 复杂 Yeah, 复杂 That, sounds. No, you're you are correct. That is the correct Putonghua pronunciation. Oh, okay. We will okay. not find you fifty kwai.、Oh, such a relief. Okay, thank you very much, Yajun. You're a good sport. It's my、uh, pleasure to be the random <laughs> test object. Well, I do want to thank、uh, Yajun for her for her help. I promise this is not going to turn into a standard segment here on Barbarians the Gate, which is called Professor Moser mocks a Chinese person's spoken Mandarin. <laughs> Although that would be fun. So now that we've complicated just what Mandarin or Putonghua is and is not, I think we need to get into really an even trickier subject. What is it supposed to do? Is Putonghua Designed to make it easier for people of different language groups or, or dialects, whatever you want to call them, to communicate. Does it make it easier for someone from Guangzhou to come to Beijing and to have a conversation, or is it to replace all of these different spoken forms of communication? And, and David, has that ever really been decided? Has it ever been clear as to what the purpose of Mandarin is or Putonghua is supposed to be? Well, that's exactly the problem.、Um, now, the Republican reformers, the Chiang Kai-shek and, and his group, they were very clear. They they wanted a national standard, and they wanted all, you know all the other dialects to go away. the The CCP were, of course,、uh, more tolerant and more more open to diversity, and also to respecting the the, the local groups. So they started out,、um, you know, I think fairly clear that. That this was meant to be a dialect that could be used, a form of speech that could be used as the common language, but that the that the the local dialects or the the different forms of speech could continue alongside Putonghua. They just wanted to have an, a, a communication medium that that worked. But、uh, I want to quote something、uh, from、uh, a scholar, a, a person named Li Jin Li Jinxi, who was、um, a friend and mentor of Mao Zedong. And also a great language reformer.、Uh, this is a quote from him、uh, when they were sort of formulating the, what the national language would be.、Uh, he said, "What we mean by national language is a sort of universal language which all the people use to express their ideas. Everyone may speak it, but everyone doesn't have to speak it. Although everyone doesn't have to speak it, we want all the people to be able to speak it. For all are Chinese, and it should not be that they cannot speak Chinese when they see each other." 
So that may sound a little confusing to you, but it's very clear that he's, he's saying what he says, everyone m must be able to speak it, but they don't have to speak it. He means that, you know, you can in daily life, you can use your, your local dialect, but you have to learn to speak this language. But the confusion is, he says, uh, they should all speak this because otherwise, when they meet, how can we say they cannot even speak Chinese? Well, that's precisely the problem. What counts as Chinese? Do these dialects don't count as Chinese? Uh, and I want to read one more example from the People's Daily in 1955, once they had already instantiated the, the Putonghua policy. The title of the editorial was Strive to Promote the Reform of the Chinese Script, the Spread of Putonghua. We should vigorously advocate the importance of the spread of Putonghua so that people know correctly the relationship between dialects and Putonghua. Putonghua serves the people of the whole country and dialects serve the people of an area. To spread Putonghua does not mean to wipe out the dialects artificially, but to reduce the scope of dialect use progressively. This is in line with the objective laws of social progress. Dialects are to exist side by side with Putonghua for quite a long period, but the use of Putonghua must be expanded constantly. And there you have it, essentially the policy today which is they don't have a clear dividing line. They, so they do have this goal of having everyone be able to speak Putonghua by 2050. But I think you can see that their agenda is that the dialect should gradually die out. And I think that's that's the thing that worries some people, that, that some speakers of these dialects, especially the prestige ones or the ones that have strong cultural associations, feel a little bit threatened by. That brings us to this the, the issues around this week or this past week with the Cantonese language. And this isn't the first time uh, this has come up that there's been pushback from regions in China and particularly in Guangdong. But if you want to extend that as well, Cantonese identity being part of Hong Kong culture as well, and Hong Kong yeah. identity. Well, how does how does Cantonese as one of these prestige dialects fit into this? You'll notice uh, if, you, if people were watching the news that the, the Cantonese language played a, a big a starring role in some of the protests uh, and in, especially in the linguistic aspects, the slogans. In Hong Kong. Uh, and yeah, and the sort of shibboleth of, you know, whether or not you were a native uh, Cantonese speaker or a, or, or a speaker of Putonghua or Mandarin. Uh, so for, for this is a very sensitive cultural issue. And especially with Cantonese, the Cantonese is very special in a way that some of these other speech forms are not. Cantonese is embedded in a southern culture that in, in, is, represents probably the only real challenge to the hegemony of the north, of the northern uh, culture and language group. It has its very, a very strong traditional culture. Uh, you know, there's Cantonese opera. I mean, many, there are many regional forms, but UHU is probably the, the most uh, outstanding one. Cantonese cuisine, uh, of course, is, is, is a world cuisine. And it's the language of canto pop, kung fu movies, and, and so much more. It's, it, it's a very, very strong culture. It's also linguistically interesting because um, Cantonese is uh, really the only uh, Han speech form that actually has its own written form which is to say it has special character, a special character set, in addition to the regular uh, existing characters, especially just to uh, represent this, the morphemes and speech sounds of Cantonese. So which, which means you can actually, there are books, books in Cantonese and you can still sometimes find uh, you know, film magazines or gossip magazines or comic books in Cantonese in Hong Kong not in mainland China, but in Hong Kong. You just look at these uh, publications and you see these strange characters with the mouth radical. 
the codes upon you there. And that's actually Cantonese. So Cantonese people feel very strong, very culturally attached to the language. And there's a, a you know so much culture, music, lore um, that they, they feel threatened by uh, the intrusion of, of, of Mandarin and Putonghua, especially in Hong Kong. Um, in 2010, in the PRC, they tried to take, or they did in fact take a lot of Cantonese programming off the air, off the TV and radio. And there were actually riots in the streets. People came out with signs saying, you know, in Guangdong province, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people took the streets protesting the, the, uh, the you know, atrophy or the, the erosion of, China, of Cantonese language in their popular media, which then spread to, to Hong Kong. You know, uh, and as Putonghua and the and the and the mainland uh, influx of mainland mainland scholars and, and professionals into Hong Kong, Cantonese is is threatened, and in academia and school and the and the school system, uh, Cantonese is somewhat uh, eroding and dying out in favor of Mandarin. So, it's it's a very very sensitive issue, and I, if there's any dialect that's going to fight to the last. Uh, morpheme, it's Cantonese. They're not going to give up that dialect anytime soon. The controversy in 2010 about Cantonese language programming, I think is also reflective of the role that, that media and the administrative organs that oversee media have played in trying to uh, promulgate a, a standardized Putonghua on the airwaves, uh, movie theaters, and now internet streams. That's definitely accelerated the process of acculturation of Mandarin beginning, say, in the 1980s in a way that you wouldn't have seen before that in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, you know, State Administration for Radio, Film, and Television, which I think now has an even longer name. What's been their policy, and has it always been applied consistently? Yeah, I don't want to get into the weeds with this because there's lots of, of legal, there's lots of laws that have come up and been passed and then ignored and then you know uh, revised. But basically, the SARF, or now it's, yeah, you're right, it's SAP, SARF, or something. It's the State Administration of Press, Publications, Radio, Film, and Television, have passed several laws mandating uh, Putonghua as the official language of state media. And what meaning that they strongly discourage any use of, of dialect or, or any other non standard forms of the language, even accent. I mean, the, the, the CCTV and CGTN uh, producers and, and, and uh, announcers and anchors all have to have very, very standard accents, and they sometimes have to go tra through training to, to ensure that, as we just saw with Yajun, there can be discrepancies. Uh, but the problem is that dialects are hard to, to kill. They're hard to erase because they're such a part of Chinese culture. They're, they're, they're fun. They're interesting. There's a lot of Chinese lore and culture embedded in them. And, you know, how can you do a CCTV Xiaopian, you know, a skit on the, on the uh, Spring Festival without a little local regional accents or, or, or Fang Yan? Or how can you do a, a Xiangsheng, a crosstalk routine without throwing in a little regional dialects? Um, so it's very hard to enforce these rulings. Um, and people will sometimes put out, you know, bootleg digital material dubbed into the local dialects because they sell. People would rather hear it in their local dialect. A thing you would find interesting, Jeremiah, and we ought to do a podcast on this this topic, you know, in, in by all by itself. But the huge number of revolutionary films showing, uh, sort of portraying all of the major battles and the and the the forming of the party, the the forming of the government, 
all the you know fights between the nationalists and so forth, all de- all depicted on film, and of course all the actors who play Chiang Kai-shek and Chairman Mao and everything are have to be played by actors lookalikes, and the policy here has been has varied and has been very uh, uneven. The standard person who play who portrays Ch- Chairman Mao is this guy named uh, Tang Guoqiang, who basically is a is a speaker of Mandarin. He, uh, so they allow, or actually, I suppose, you know, prefer to have Chairman Mao speak in these movies with a standard Mandarin accent, a standard Northern accent, and not the very strong Hunanese accent that we know he actually spoke. So this would be like doing a biopic of uh, somebody like George Bush or something and having him having speak like, you know, an NPR announcer. You'd say, whoa, what? You know, it would be received with shock but not awe so but you know other movies there was a long a few years ago a, a Deng Xiaoping biopic in which uh, the actor spoke in Sichuan dialect pretty unabashed Sichuan dialect throughout there's also uh, the internet is very hard to police in this regard and so there's all kinds of unauthorized uh, dialect use all throughout it and there's even places where uh, there's sort of domains like Sichuan rap culture where they actually prefer using the Sichuan dialect because it has an authenticity and a sort of edginess that the Putonghua wouldn't have. And it's very hard to, to erase all of that. So I think this is a battle, a sort, of, a sort of a linguistic battle that will go on for some time to come. One other front in that battle is, of course, the educational system and the standardization of Putonghua across levels of education and, you know, even... It's not uncommon, and I, I've seen this a lot, especially in some of the more frontier areas, you know, Yunnan, Qinghai, uh, places like that. But you see a lot of signs around the school reminding students and perhaps the teachers to speak Putonghua um, at school. And it, it, it reminds us just how powerful um, the schools are in creating a culture of Putonghua. I mean, one other thing I've noticed when I travel a lot is you go to some of these more remote villages and if you want to speak to somebody, you find somebody who's 12 or 13 years old because they've been brought up in a school system where they speak uh, Putonghua with their teachers. So if a lot of the other people in the village maybe either speak one of the, uh, you know, they're a member of one of the ethnic nationalities, so their, their language isn't even Chinese, or if they speak a local variation of Chinese, the kids often, because of the school system, uh, speak a, a version of standard Putonghua. Yeah, the the, uh, the the educational system obviously is is one of the most important influences here. As is the media, the, the mass media. I mean, kids tend to grow up with television and, and radio, internet, and they begin to speak like the people that they're watching on TV rather than their their parents. But you know, it's a long uh, it's a long slog, and in some in some areas where the dialect usage is quite prominent, the kids become bilingual basically. Uh, it's, but it's interesting to notice that every year there's uh, at least one Putong promotion week where they, you know, try to push, push, as you say, uh, the Putonghua in the schools and, and in daily life. And there are all kinds of promotional banners you can see. And if you look at these, it's very interesting. I'll just read three of them that I encountered. So the first one uh, is "Ai Guo Qi, Ai Guo Ge, Shuo Putonghua." Love the national flag, sing the national anthem, speak Putonghua. The second one I, I noticed was I'm a China kid or a China child. I love to speak Putonghua. And the, the third one is uh, 大力推广普通话, 增强中华民族凝聚力, 
vigorously promote Putonghua, strengthen the cohesiveness of the Chinese nation. So if you look at these three as examples, it's really about more than just uh, mutual communication and facilitating communication between the, the various peoples of China. It's about nation building. It's about patriotism. It's about unity. It's about national unity. Because there's this notion that if we all speak in one common language, that our thinking and that our way of behaving and our under mutual understanding will be increased. And I think that's the, the hidden, not, and it's not even hidden, it's nakedly right there. The agenda is to build cohesiveness, build national unity and patriotism. Can a shared language imply a shared vision for society? Yeah, that's a question I ask at the end of my book. And uh, I think... It's a wonderful dream they have. It's a very authoritarian dream that, that dates back to the beginning of this agenda after the fall of the Qing. But I think they may be fooling themselves. We come from the United States, which is a country that we have local regional accents, but we really don't have anything like a, a different language, a dialect that is so far apart that it's another form of speech. And yet, the one thing we really lack is political and ideological unity, even though we understand every word we say. So I think China is going to find out that even if they realize this goal in 2050 or whenever they're going to realize it, there's still going to be uh, divisions, schisms, and in, inter countries squabbling on all sorts of things. Uh, it's, it's a pipe dream. Well, if, you, if you're interested in reading more about this, and I'm going to recommend this book because David is too modest to do so. Uh, David goes into great detail on all of these issues in his book, which was published uh, three years ago, four years ago, 2016, right? Yep. The, uh, a, billion, a Billion Voices, China's Search for a Common Language, which is available on Kindle. Um, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a really great introduction to all of these issues. And we'll be no doubt revisiting uh, some of the other aspects of China's language policy in this podcast um, as we go forward. David, you're also reading a, a, a new book that was just, I think, just published either late last year or, early, or earlier this year uh, by a, a scholar named Gina Tam on language. Yes, I, I can't recommend this book uh, too strongly. Gina and Tam's new book is called Dialect and Nationalism in China. I am almost finished with it. I'm reading it very slowly because I want to savor every paragraph. It's written so well. I think it's really the definitive book on this, this, this particular subject that we've been covering, the dialects. It's a real substantial piece of scholarship, very readable, very accessible, and it traces the, the areas that we've been dealing with that's discussing in this podcast, how the academics, the language planners, the intellectuals in the 20th century, as well as Chiang Kai-shek, the CCP struggled with these these competing strategies for dealing with with Fangyan for dialects. She just does a great job of capturing this tension between these notions of how Fangyan should be conceptualized and incorporated into the Chinese identity, since that's what it's all about. It's like there's a search for the Chinese identity. Especially important for our discussion is how the PC PRC language policies are pushing for the eventual predominance of Putonghua, which is what we just mentioned, and not without considerable pushback. So I know from writing my own book, it's really hard to explain the intricacies of, of Chinese dialects and, how, and their relationship to the script and the connection between language, culture, and, and all these aspects. But she does an amazing job. She's a natural explainer, let's put it that way. And I, I would assume she's always a, she's also a great teacher, I would assume. I recommend it very highly. It's a great book. Uh, I think it's the, the standard. For a long time, it will be the source for this, this uh, topic. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for that recommendation. We'll put links to uh, David's book and also uh, Gina Tam's book in our show notes as well. Well, thank you for spending time with us. We'll see you. We'll talk to you again. 
in two weeks. David, as always, it's good to see you. Uh, stay safe and uh, enjoy Oklahoma. I, Oklahoma is okay. Did you know that? And on that note, thank you for joining us <laughs> in Barbarians at the Gate, home of good Chinese history information and dad jokes. Bye.